Hey guys, happy Friday. Welcome back to another episode of Those Murder Girls Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Raina. And I'm Marie. We are so excited to jump into today's episode. But before we do, we ask that you please hit subscribe wherever you are listening to us right now and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Those Murder Girls Podcast. There you guys can keep up to date on some crazy true crime headlines. We post weekly trailers and episode discussions. As always, we have uploaded some photos for today's episode so you guys can check that out and follow along. This week, we will be telling you the tragic murder of a 14-year-old high school student, Tina Feltz, from Pleasanton, California. Pleasanton is a suburb of San Francisco, and it's about 25 miles east of Oakland. It has a population of around 70,000 residents. Tina grew up in Pleasanton with her mother and brother in a quaint neighborhood near Interstate 680, and it was right around the corner from her high school. Tina was very close with her brother growing up, so when Tina didn't return home from school on the afternoon of April 5th, 1984, he immediately knew that something was not right. It was completely out of Tina's character to not be home on time after school had let out. What he didn't know was the sheer horror that was being inflicted on Tina that afternoon, and that their lives were about to be torn apart forever. The family would have to wait almost 30 very long years before Tina's case would be brought to justice, and the monster that took Tina's young life that day would finally be convicted. Tina was a 14-year-old freshman at Foothill High School in Pleasanton. On the afternoon of April 5th, after her usual classes, Tina was to report to detention, but she decided to skip all that and just make her way home. Taking a back route through a dark culvert under the Interstate 680 overpass to her Valley Trails home. And for those of you who don't know what a culvert is, because I didn't know before this, it's a long, narrow tunnel that's usually a concrete structure that allows water to flow under roadways. They're super creepy. They're filled with muck, dirt, just garbage. They're disgusting. And our advice to you guys is to never (laughs) take the culvert. So the reason why Tina took the culvert route home that day was because she didn't like taking the bus to or from school. She had been the victim of intense bullying by her classmates and other students at the high school. It was reported that a group of mean girls in Tina's class were picking on her daily, and they even went as far as to tell her that they wanted to tie her to a tree and stab her to death. Oh my gosh, no wonder Tina didn't want to take the bus be around those bitches. Seriously, so scary. Tina would only make it halfway home that afternoon. Her body was found by classmates bludgeoned at 3.45 p.m., Authorities believe that when the classmates found Tina, she had only been dead for 10 to 15 minutes max because her body was still warm. The students then run for help and call 911. Shortly after the call went out, authorities arrive at the scene and an intense investigation begins. Tina's body had been stabbed an astonishing 44 times with wounds to her face, chest, and her torso. I mean, to stab a 14-year-old high school student 44 times and leave her to bleed to death in a ditch near an overpass, it's almost too much to comprehend as to why someone someone would commit this crime. 
Now, when Tina was discovered, the detectives noted that there was not much evidence at the crime scene. There was no murder weapon, no DNA, and no trail of whom could be responsible for this. Detectives gathered what they could. They took photos of the scene and the surrounding areas, and then they set out on foot looking for any clues or anything that was potentially left behind by the killer. Investigators and detectives, they had discovered that Tina's purse had been thrown up into a nearby tree branch, and it just happened to be hanging there, almost as if someone just tossed it up there away from her, possibly the killer as he left the crime scene. Inside her purse, they found her school identification card. So at that point, the detectives were able to positively identify Tina as their victim. Later that afternoon, Tina's family had become so worried when she did not arrive home from school. And Tina's younger brother, he was especially worried because Tina typically, she always made it home before him every other day. Now, Tina and her brother, they were extremely close. She would always do his homework with him in the evenings. And when their mother was out late, she watched after him. So as the night grew late with no signs of Tina, her brother became increasingly concerned about her. He went to sleep that evening, not knowing where his sister was or what had even happened to her. And when he woke up the next morning, their mother surely broke the devastating news to him that Tina had been found murdered. Police began their investigation into Tina's murder, not knowing the long battle they and the family would endure on the road to bringing Tina's case to justice. Police started by interviewing classmates at Tina's high school and her close friends, but nobody had any information as to who would possibly want Tina dead. They started to focus on the group of mean girls, the same ones that told Tina they wanted to stab her to death. They tormented her on a daily basis. I mean, so I would say that's a pretty good place for the detectives to focus on, right? Yeah, but a group of 14-year-old girls talking about killing someone? I just can't imagine. No. That group of girls happened to have an alibi that afternoon. They were all in detention, so they were immediately eliminated as suspects. Police go on to interview two other students, Todd Smith and Stephen Carlson. Both of the boys stated that they had witnessed Tina taking off on that back route to her home through the culvert. During the interview, Stephen suggested that the detectives look into a student named Jeff Michelson. Stephen stated he saw Jeff running through the culvert around the same time that Tina was murdered. Jeff became their first person of interest, though it was hard for police to grasp how such a young kid could ever commit such an incredibly brutal crime. The next person of interest to come across the cops' radar is Shirley's live-in boyfriend, Keith. Family and friends had said that Keith had quite the temper and things were not always the greatest in the home. Keith had been at work that day, and when he heard about Tina's death, he relayed to his boss that he had to head home to comfort Shirley and the rest of the family. But the weird thing is, prior to him leaving to work, Keith handed his boss a knife from his belt and asked his boss to hold on to it for him. That's so weird. (laughs) Why would he hand his knife to his boss? Like, what a way to look like a suspect, Keith. I know you're on your way to an active murder investigation what? and you're like, hey, boss man, hold my knife. Oh my gosh. <laughs> suspect. So the cops did test that knife and it came back clean. Keith had a solid alibi all day. You know, his boss vouched for him. He was at work and he was cleared as a suspect. 
the cops reverted their attention back to Jeff Michelson, who was also seen by two other high school students that day taking off towards the culvert. As law enforcement began to gather more information on Jeff, they were told by other students that Jeff had been the ringleader of the bullying at the high school. He would pick on the smaller kids, and one of those kids just happened to be Stephen Carlson, the same kid that told the cops, hey, check out Jeff. The day of Tina's murder, the cops learned that Jeff had thrown Stephen into a dumpster at the back of the school, and he was left there for about 10 minutes until a teacher found him and let him out. Several girls at the school reported that Jeff would act super inappropriately with them. He would, like, grope and touch them. The cops heard all of the girls out, but what the cops found even more intriguing was that Jeff was known to carry a hunting-style knife on the sheath of his belt. Oh, my gosh. Stop. For real, a high school student (laughs) carrying a hunting knife at school? How times have changed. When they interviewed Jeff, they noticed that he had a cut on his index finger. Jeff goes on to tell them a story about how he had supposedly cut his finger. But like mid-story, he immediately retracts whatever he said and begins to tell them a completely different story. Okay, so at this point, Jeff is not doing the greatest job of clearing himself as a suspect. Not at all. The cops do a thorough search of Jeff's home, and they actually found a pile of bloody clothes. So they're super stoked, like, dude, we found our guy. They send the clothes off to be tested, and the blood turns out to be animal blood, which does make perfect sense because Jeff is known to be an avid hunter. There was never enough evidence to detain him or even call him a concrete suspect, but he did stay on the cops' radar for years. The cops continued to follow up on leads that had trickled in, but within about a year, Tina's case went cold. Her case would continue to go cold for 27 years. As the years went on, Shirley's health started to severely decline. She just agonized over her daughter's murder. Those who were close to her said that she was literally dying of a broken heart. By late 2000, over two decades since Tina's murder, DNA testing had progressed immensely. Obviously, back in 1984, we didn't have the same DNA testing and forensic capabilities that we do now. So they start going through what evidence they were able to retrieve from the culvert that day and analyzing all of the photos from the crime scene. It's then that they decide to re-examine the purse they had recovered. Because remember, they found Tina's purse in a tree nearby her body. But what was Tina's purse doing in the tree hanging from the limb? It's as if someone had just thrown it up there, possibly the killer as he was leaving the crime scene. So they take the purse out of evidence and they re-examine it closely. And they notice that there are multiple patterns of blood stains across the purse. So they send her purse to Quantico, Virginia, and FBI biologists conduct a series of tests on all the dry blood stains. The tests revealed that there was DNA presence along with Tina's DNA, and it was a male DNA presence. So they run that DNA through the national database, and they get a hit. Now keep in mind, everyone is extremely close to this case literally they've been waiting for years since the moment they discovered tina murdered some of the detectives were still working at the same department 
So after 27 years of waiting, Quantico calls with a DNA match and everyone in the police station went silent. It was Stephen Carlson, who is now 46. Stephen Carlson, the kid from the dumpster, the kid who told the cops that they should look into Jeff Michelson because he saw him take off running to the culvert the same day that Tina was stabbed to death. When Stephen's name came up in the database, it was a one to five quadrillion that the DNA could possibly belong to anyone other than him. Now, at the time of Tina's murder, Stephen lived near that culvert. His house, it was located on Lemonwood Way, and his street ended where the path that led to the culvert began. He lived in the second closest house to the culvert, and his house also overlooked the exact area where Tina's body was found. Now, when it was announced that charges were being filed against Stephen in relation to Tina's murder, the town was talking. Some neighbors even stated that they had seen Stephen sitting on his roof the evening of Tina's murder, staring at the crime scene. That's so eerie, just watching the detectives work. Yes. Oh, that's creepy. I know. The same teacher that rescued Stephen from the dumpster that day of Tina's murder also told cops that he had requested Stephen go to the head office to report being bullied and locked in the trash can. But instead, he saw Stephen take off in the direction of the culvert. The teacher had asked Stephen days after Tina's murder if he had anything to do with it, to which Stephen replied to him, God knows. That's all he said. Now, Stephen, he probably would have gone undetective had he not had a lengthy legal rap sheet. Stephen had been in and out of jail throughout the years for drug charges, battery, and he was also a registered sex offender. Stephen started using drugs as a teen, and he pretty much cut off all contact with his family by the time he turned 20. He went on to marry, he had two children, and then he ended up back in prison. In 1989, in Yolo County, California, at the age of 21, Stephen was convicted of committing lewd acts with a child under the age of 14, and therefore he was required to register as a sex offender. He served three years in prison for this crime, and then he was released. He was charged with assault in 2008, and then he was sentenced back to jail. In August 2011, Stephen is in custody in a Santa Cruz County jail on drug charges when he's reprocessed and charged with Tina's murder. Because Stephen was only 16 at the time of the crime, he was originally going to be charged in a juvenile court. But thankfully, on January 12th, 2012, a judge ruled that he would be prosecuted in an adult court because of the degree of the crime. She was stabbed 44 times. He needs to be charged as an adult. I think one of the saddest parts of this story is that Shirley died of a heartache. She passed away on February 13th, the day Tina's trial was to begin. She had waited for this day for 28 years. She never got to see her daughter's killer be brought to justice. It's just so heartbreaking. I know. I can't think about that. Stephen's trial was held in Alameda County, and Stephen maintained his innocence through the entire trial. His defense argued that there was a lack of evidence, even though the prosecution clearly stated that Stephen's DNA match was one in five quadrillion. 
His defense also said that he didn't receive a fair trial, and they accused the prosecution of gross mischaracterization. Ultimately, Stephen was convicted of first-degree murder, and he was charged in Tina's death and sentenced to 26 years to life in prison. Case closed? Think again. Stephen's attorney goes on to file an appeal in 2017. She requested that his sentence be reduced to a shorter term because of the lack of premeditation that comes with a first-degree murder charge. That's right, guys. Crazy. But the appeal states that there was not enough evidence or premeditation and deliberation at his trial in 2014, so it didn't justify that first-degree murder charge against him. Well, guys, I will go on to tell you that Stephen Carlson wins his appeal. Oh, my gosh. I know. The state appeals court orders that Stephen be resentenced to a shorter prison term. The California Court of Appeal reduced Stephen's conviction to a second-degree murder charge, and under the appeals court decision, he will be resentenced to 16 years to life. Today, Stephen is serving out his sentence in a Bay Area prison, which is exactly where he should be for taking the life of such a beautiful young little girl. To this day, Stephen still claims his innocence. Thank you guys for joining us this week, and thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for all of your support. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we'll see you back here next week for some more true crime. Have a safe weekend, everyone. Bye, Bye, guys. guys.